you get into these things where you think you knew what you were signing up for, and then you sign up for it, and there's this moment of realization like, oh, this is not what I thought I was signing up for, or I didn't know the extent to which I was called to do this, or maybe this is bigger and further and more intensive than I thought it was going to be. And this is what we're watching, I think, with the Apostle Paul, something that's going to be taught as we go through this morning uh, and finish, well, not finish, but work through the middle of Acts chapter 21. Because the Apostle Paul, uh, if you remember, and I'm going to keep referencing back to the speech, because the speech that he gave in Acts chapter 20, which was a couple weeks ago now, was kind of this final words. If you remember, he's traveling uh, down to Jerusalem. He stops at a church that he had been at for a long time. He gathers the church leaders together. And this is not just to everybody, but to the church leaders. He says, hey guys, I'm never going to see you again, but I'm fully committed to finishing my race well. I don't count my life as dear to myself, but I just, I am going to do what God has called me to do and finish well. And, and so I know that when I get to Jerusalem, it's going to be hard for me. There's going to be difficulty, but I'm going to, I can't run a meaningless race, guys. I can't get off course. I got to finish well. And that's going to set the framing for the rest of the book. The rest of the book is going to get really difficult for Paul. And I want you to see that in terms of this is what it looks like for him to actually finish well. Okay, this isn't, this is, we're not doing like college classes here. This isn't theory. Like Paul didn't get up and be like, okay guys, so that's all we learned about finishing well. Next week we're going to, no, he's like, closing the book, and he's like, I have to go live my life because I'm worried that I won't finish well. Right? He wasn't just like, hey, so that's all I have to say about finishing well. Like, see you guys later. No, he's like, I'm in the middle of finishing well. I'm doing this. I'm living this out. And they were going to watch him do that. And, and, and please see this because it's the second time I've said it in as many weeks. I think it's important. This is how the Christian faith was passed on. Right? When, when Jesus left and he's like, go make disciples, sometimes we don't think through what that actually meant. Discipleship was way more like internship than it was studentship. I don't know if studentship's a word, but I just made it up. Right? It, was, it was way more it's like apprentice than student. It's way more about the things you did than the things you knew. It, it was way more about being than knowing. Okay? So... When people think about this following Jesus thing, I, sometimes I just wonder if we didn't realize what we were getting ourselves into. We thought it was just about information we would know. I actually heard a description of the church this week that was kind of eye-opening for me. This person said, when I go to church, I feel like a head on a stick. And their point was, it just doesn't matter anything else that's going on with me, just what I know. And that was sad to me because when the early church came, they, you know what they were called? They were called the way because of the way they lived their life. They weren't called the knowledge because they had different ideas. Like the actual living out of their life was different. And that's what we're going to see as Paul finishes his, his, his race well. His life is actually different. Um, and if you remember, this didn't actually start with Paul. Paul got this model from Jesus. You remember that? Five days before Jesus hung on a cross, he said something very similar to what Paul just said about finishing well. Jesus said, my soul is troubled. And, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, I'm going to ask God to take this from me? No, this is why I came. 
Like, I'm going to finish well. Jesus was intent on finishing well. Passed that on to his apostles, who one of them was Paul. Paul now told the Ephesian elders to finish well. And this is how the Christian faith is passed down and continues. By men and women with legacies of finishing well. Passing it on to other men and women who have a desire to finish well and teach others to finish well. This is how the church impacted the world. This is how the church moved forward. But it doesn't happen unless people step into the calling of God to live their life in an actual new way. And that's why I started this morning by like, you ever gotten into something and you didn't realize what it was about? And, and I think there's a lot of people who step into being Christian. At, oh, I'm going to have to live different? I'm going to have to say no to that? <laughs> Wait, I just, I heard that pastor guy say, Jesus died for my sin. I was like, hey, that sounds like a good idea. Sign me up for that. Raise my hand when everybody had their eyes closed, head bowed, right? And no, 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 there's actually a different life that God is calling you into. Now, I'm not going to be super legalistic and give you, like, the list of rules. or like, we don't go to R-rated, like, we don't need to do that. But you, if you think that just knowing something is what changes your eternity, you might want to pray about that, okay? Because we're going to see here how Paul's life actually looks different, what it looks like for Paul to finish well. So if you remember last week, Paul gave this speech about staying on course, finishing well, not running a meaningless race, meaningless race. Then he traveled to Jerusalem. When he got to Jerusalem, he hung out with the original apostles that were like with Jesus, uh, James, Jesus' brother, Peter was there, a couple others. And the church leaders in Jerusalem came up with this plan because they're like, Paul, we're, we appreciate you're here, man. But the Jews in Jerusalem have heard that you're out there teaching other people that they don't have to follow the law of Moses. Like they don't have to follow the rules to make God happy. And that really makes the Jews mad. And so if you didn't know Jerusalem at this feast time about Pentecost, probably anywhere from quadrupled to tenfold in size, like the population just went nuts because people were all gathering from different parts of the world to celebrate this feast. And so they came up with this plan. They're like, Paul, you're going to get yourself killed. Everybody's mad at you. So there was these four guys who were going through a vow, like this religious ceremony of following rules and making themselves holy before God. So they said, hey, Paul, you go hang out with these four guys. And if people see you hanging out with the four guys, then they should realize, oh, Paul doesn't say we don't have to follow the rules anymore. Paul's hanging out with these four guys who are going through a vow, and they're following all the rules. So Paul's fine. Think that's going to work? Me neither. Here we go. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, so this seven days of vow following that Paul was wandering around with these four guys, when that seven days was almost up, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. For they had previously seen Trometheus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So Paul and the guys come up with this plan to hang out with these guys for seven days. They're following this vow, this ceremonial rule type thing. And on the last, one of the last days, it says they almost made it through the whole seven days, didn't quite get there, right? They see Paul, they grab him, they start to beat him with the intention of killing him. Now, the temptation is to think they were so close. They were so close to making it through the week and they would have been in the clear. Is that true? No, this was the will of God, 
Right? Sometimes we convince ourselves that our plan, apart from God's will, was like so close to succeeding. It's false. You're, you're an expert at self-deception. Right? You're like, I almost made it work. No, you didn't make it work. Right? It happens all the time. And God told Paul and others that Paul was going to be apprehended and abound. They were never at any time close to that not happening no matter how clever they thought their plan was. I know we think very highly of ourselves and we think we can like make a plan like around like actually doing what God says or like living the way he's called us to. It never works. And last week, the believers finished with this statement, let the will of the Lord be done. And, and, and I love that idea because it, it's kind of an admission. Like even though Paul's walking into the difficulty, it doesn't restrict the, the providence of God to times of prosperity. You get that? When he says, let the will of the Lord be done as Paul walks into this difficulty, it doesn't mean God's only good when things are going good in your life. Or that God's only in control when things are working out for you. Or that God only loves you when you can feel his kindness. Right? There's times of difficulty where God is still in control, still loves you, and still is working for your good. And Paul is going to run into this. And I, I hope I'm going to point this out real quick before we move on. Staying on course, like Paul said, and finishing well, is going to involve difficulty that is not directly your fault. Wait, I'm going to have to go through something hard because of that guy? Because of that girl? Because of this family? Because of that group of people? Like, my life's going to be harder because of them? I didn't do this. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It doesn't even have to do with following Jesus. It has to do with being alive, okay? Being alive in this world involves going through difficulty that is not your fault. So if you thought you were going to come in here and be like, oh yeah, difficulty that's not my fault is not what I signed up for. I'm not going to follow Jesus. Fine, you don't have to follow Jesus, but being alive means you're going to go through difficulty that's not your fault. Now the question becomes, do you want it to work for the glory of God and your good? Or do you just want it to be hard? Because if you turn your back on the life God has called you to live and go through difficulty that's not your fault, it's just going to be hard. They have that saying, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. False! Right? What doesn't kill you just was a waste of your life unless God is in control. Right? People are like, oh, I went through this really hard thing and now I'm just bitter and jaded and call it stronger. That's actually not what happened. Right? Difficulty that is not your fault unless... God is directing your steps, does not do anything for you. The question is not will you go through difficulty. The question is will you surrender to the Lord in it and allow him to work for your good. The journey of your life will involve difficulty and difficulty that is not your fault. And if you are a Jesus follower, you recognize that. And you recognize that Jesus' life involved enduring difficulty. Paul's life is now involving enduring difficulty. And it's going to follow that if we follow Jesus in the example of Paul, our lives are going to involve walking through difficulty that is not our fault. So here's the question. Why does God's word tell us that? Hey, this is going to be really bad. Thanks, I guess. Why, why would God put that in his word? It's to hopefully transform those moments of difficulty into moments of hope. Right? When, if you're walking through difficulty this morning, the word of God doesn't tell you, yeah, join the club with a sense of despair. 
It says, yes, you're on a good path of staying on course and finishing well like Paul, like Jesus. And there is hope in that. We find hope in the example because God promises to meet us in those moments of difficulty in ways that he could not have ever met us any way else. Like he meets our needs and is real to us in moments of difficulty, especially ones that aren't our fault in ways that we would not know him in times of prosperity. So we find hope in these moments. God knew that you being alive was going to involve difficulty that was not your fault. And he promised to do two things. He promised to give us himself in those moments and to use those moments for our good. If we let him. And and that transforms those difficult moments into moments of despair to examples of why our lives have been transformed by the goodness of God. Like there is hope now in these moments. That's why this is written. Like, God wasn't just like, I've got to fill up a whole bunch of pages. What should I do? I, just, I guess I'll tell him about Paul. No, he was like, Paul went through hardship and had hope in the midst of it. These people need to know that, that they would also have hope. You realize one of the names for God is the Redeemer? The Redeemer. Now, to redeem something is to add value or worth to something. And, and more specifically, add value or worth to something that was valueless and worthless. So we I, we're like, ah, oh, I love the Redeemer. But we kind of don't want to be in a situation where we would have to be redeemed. <laughs> we wouldn't want to live our lives in a way that was valueless and worthless and actually have him redeem us. But it's in those moments that you know what it is to actually Walk with the Redeemer. When you go through the valley of the shadow of death, like David said, and you go through a moment in life that wasn't your fault and you didn't ask for it and it's way harder than you expected and you can't believe God is letting you have this experience. Like, and he redeems you. He lifts you out of the pit. Like, that's a knowledge of God that's incredible. That's a knowledge of God that is strong. That's a knowledge of God that gives hope in the difficulty. There was another guy in your Bible named Job who went through this crazy set of difficulties that were not his fault. And at the end of it, he said, I watched God redeem my life. And the difference between then and now is like the difference between hearing about God and now seeing him face to face. Like the difference is like I had just like heard about God and now it's like he's standing in front of me and I get to look at him. That's a pretty big difference, right? If you don't think that's a big difference... Have you ever thought about how you would explain sight to somebody who is blind? Just do it as a mental exercise real quick. Like, okay, you got a blind person sitting in front of you, never seen. Try to explain sight to them. It's like, uh, it's amazing. Like, I don't know. Like, it's a really hard exercise. That's what Job said when he walked through difficulty that was not his fault and got to the other side of it. He's like, as God walked with me through this difficulty, it's like before I'd only heard about him, and now I get to see him. And some of you have never walked through God with difficulty, so you're like, it doesn't make sense because you're like a blind person who never saw before. And we're over here trying to tell you what sight's like. I can only tell you, if you've never gone through difficulty with this hope that God is actually using it for good to be a blessing to you and a building of his kingdom, you'll, you'll never know the experience until you actually walk by faith and do it. Uh, let's continue on. If I stay on that too long, we'll never get done. Verse 32. Here we go. 
He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So the leader, uh, the Roman, at the time, Jerusalem is uh, occupied by Roman forces. So uh, the Jews are like running the city, but Romans are the political power in charge at the time. So this political official, the Roman uh, leader of whatever he's called, cohort in the um, text. But he, he looks down and he's like, oh, man, he's the governor or some sort. He's in charge. He looks down, he's like, hey, they're going to beat this guy to death. So they, this is who he's talking about here. He at once, so the leader, took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And he inquired who he was and what he had done. And some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And the tribune said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Which is a weird thing to say. But Paul is now overtaken by this mob. They're trying to beat him to death because they had been told he didn't follow the law, which wasn't even true. Then the Romans get a hold of him. The tribune sees this going on. They arrest him, bind him between two Roman soldiers, one chain on each wrist to separate uh, the guards. So you'd be like two guards and you're chained one wrist to each guard. And then they, they're trying to figure out what's going on, but the crowd is so enraged and trying to beat Paul to death that they actually realize it's not safe to have Paul, so they go to take him inside. They're like, get him out of here. So they pick him up and carry him inside. And as Paul's being carried inside, he like looks over and sees the guy in charge, the tribune, and he goes, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And the tribune's like, you know, speak English, right? Yeah, and he doesn't say that, but he's like, you, I thought you were Egyptian. And if you're Paul, you're like, just anybody know what's really going on here? Like, these people believe this lie about me. This person believes this lie about me. This person, what do you think I am? Like, I, I would be so flabbergasted if I was Paul with all these people thinking different things about him. None of them are true. That has to be a miserable experience. But if Jesus was misunderstood and misrepresented and Paul was misunderstood and misrepresented, then the way that Jesus calls us to live our lives probably involves us being misunderstood and misrepresented. And this one's really hard for me to take. I, I, I don't know. Right? Oh, they said this about you. They said you said this. They said this. This people over here said you're like this. And you're just like, Dear God, please help me. Is there like a thing that comes up inside you when somebody says they heard something about you that's not true? Is that just me? The rest of you feel that a little bit? Right? If you want to follow Jesus, you should expect you will be misunderstood and misrepresented. And that's just part of following the one who was misunderstood and misrepresented all the way to the cross. I remember when I was a youth pastor and a football coach in Colorado, somehow the newspaper ended up calling me for something they were doing. And the guy's like, hey, can we interview you? And I was like, sure. And so he came up and like, he hung out with me for a day. And we were doing, at the time, we were doing a uh, Bible study at the public high school during lunchtime, like on campus. Because uh, I was a football coach and I knew the kids and stuff. So we would buy pizzas at Little, Little Caesars. That's one of my favorite jokes in the whole world, how do Mexicans cut their pizzas? Little Caesars. Anyway, so 
we would buy pizza at Little Caesars, and then we would go to the high school. Some of you guys are laughing now. Like, that took you a while. I'm just saying. Like, keep up. So we'd take the pizzas to the high school, and we'd teach this Bible study. So this guy, like, hung out with me and, like, saw us, and, like, public kids were, like, they would eat, and we would teach the Bible. It was cool. So the article came out which I was kind of excited about. Like, this is my first time ever, like, dealing with, like, newspaper reporter people and stuff. And, like, one of the first sentences was, like, yeah, Jared Lee is a football coach at the high school, and he works at a local church, and his ministry is mostly pizza-based. And I was like, my ministry is mostly pizza-based? I was like, is there a more offensive thing you, like... What if, like, any of you, like, whatever work you do, whatever you're passionate about, I just compared it to food, right? It's like, hey, moms, you know, mostly what you do is make peanut butter and jelly. You'd be like, right? Like, don't, don't make your husband sleep on the couch because I said that. But, like, there's, like, that's so, and he probably doesn't know. He's just trying to write stuff down, right? And, like, I was like, is police work mostly donut-based? Like, are you trying to, like... I was, I was pretty bummed, and uh, he probably didn't even know, but this is just one of those things that happens. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be misrepresented. I feel like I've tried to give my life to the teaching of the Word of God and to, guy, to have a guy be like, yeah, he's mostly about buying kids pizza. I'm like, mm-hmm. um, I called one of my friends at the time. And I was pretty upset. This guy is kind of like a really great friend of mine and loves Jesus and is a pastor. And he said, this is kind of what we signed up for when we decided to follow Jesus, right? Being misrepresented and misunderstood. Like if, if you're following Jesus because you think the world is going to be fair and accurate and give you a big high five at the end, it's not going to happen. Like that's just the cost of not only following Jesus, but loving people. Like, people are messy, and relationships are messy, and you stub your toe, like, at some point in the morning, so you're, like, limping around, and then somebody walks by you, and it's like, hey, and you're like, hey, and then they get mad at you for seven years, and you're like, what happened? It's like, well, that one time when you said hi to me, you had a weird look on your face, and I think you're mad at me. Like, no, I stubbed my toe, right? Like, this is, like, this is, the enemy is trying to divide and conquer and ruin your lives, and being misrepresented and misunderstood is just part of the deal. So Paul here starts to kind of try to repair that. And look at what he says, verse 39. He says, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and then there was a great hush. And he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, now, I'm actually going to finish here. Today's going to be a little shorter because I want to take Paul's speech as a whole and cover it next week. It's pretty long. Um, But I want you to think about who's watching all of this happen. Who's watching Paul get arrested and beaten and they're trying to kill him? And like, who's, who's the fly on the wall that's taking all of this in? Why did Paul feel the need to go to Jerusalem? Why is being arrested and imprisoned in Jerusalem important to the plan of God? Like, who is benefiting from this? Who is this helping? Who is Paul being an example to? Well, he's an example to us, for sure, reading this. Um, 
And he's an example for the Ephesian church leaders too when he said, I want to stay on course and finish my race and not run a meaningless race and I want to finish well uh, and I'm never going to see you guys again. He's an example of those guys. But more specifically, who's in Jerusalem? Think about who's watching this right now. Peter and James and other believers who had been in Jerusalem for at this point almost 30 years. Okay, and so I don't have a text that I can point to to tell you that watching Paul go through this afflicted uh, state and this difficulty that wasn't his fault and being misunderstood and misrepresented affected these men. Like, I don't, I don't have like a smoking gun of like, look at this verse. But I, just think about sitting there as a church leader who had been in Jerusalem for 30 years and watching Paul now come into your city and be beat and almost murdered and arrested for the same cause that you claim to stand up for. Would that affect you at all? Remember, when we started the book of Acts and the apostles in Jerusalem would preach the gospel, they would get thrown into prison for it. Like once upon a time, the message they were preaching was just as offensive to the Jewish culture as the message Paul is currently preaching. I don't know what happened. It seems like over these 30 years, however they started to live their lives, didn't put them in as much danger anymore. Seemed to be a little more comfortable. In fact, they were like, well, we got these four guys, and they could go in and out of the temple anytime they want. And they're going to go do their vow, and you just hang out with them, Paul, because the culture doesn't hate them. And I, I think sometimes we need to be reminded that the culture should hate us. Hate us is probably a strong word, but... I wonder if the faith that the Christians in Jerusalem were living out was so acceptable to the Jewish religious culture that they just left them alone because they no longer saw them as countercultural. I point that out because the way of Jesus, if it ceases to be countercultural, that's a problem. The gospel doesn't tell you like, hey, you're doing a pretty good job, just stay the same. You'll be all right in the end. The gospel is countercultural to all cultures, to the way humanity is wired. The gospel is intended to be countercultural. When people who hate Jesus love you, that's, that's a problem. Now, I'm not saying we need to be like, everybody should hate me, me against the world, right? You can go too far the other way. But there are some people out there who think that it's very cool to connect with non-believers. And I think we are called to reach the lost. But sometimes the reason they like us so much is because we stopped looking like Jesus a long time ago. We stopped being countercultural a long time ago. And I wonder if Paul going through this in front of the Christians who lived in Jerusalem wasn't a gift to them to remind them of how countercultural they used to be or how countercultural they still should be. Uh, I think God sometimes uses situations like this to remind us of what it will take to stay on course and finish well like Paul is doing. You hang out with, I don't know if you've ever done this, you hang out with a new believer, and they like remind you of stuff that you used to think, and you're like, oh yeah, that used to be a big deal to me too. And if you do that right, you should be like, it still should be a big deal to me. Like it challenges you in some ways. Uh, my wife's family has this incredible story. Her uncle used to be a leader at a church in California. 
and her uncle was like uh, mentoring this guy who had just got uh, who just started following Jesus in the church and got baptized and was real excited about following Jesus and like let's go and so. Uh, my wife's uncle met him at the beach and they're walking along the beach and this guy's like, I just so awesome to follow Jesus. And the guy, my wife's uncle's like, yeah, it is good for you. And they start walking and they come up on this like crowd of people at the beach. And they're kind of like, what's going on here? As they get close, they realize that somebody who is surfing has drowned and is laying on the sand, not breathing. And there's like starting to get like a crowd gathered around him now, just all looking. And he's just laying in the middle and nobody's doing anything. He's just laying there. And the young guy who had just got saved looks at my wife's uncle and is like, you should pray for him. And he's like, he's a church leader. That should have been his idea, <laughs> right? And he's like, oh, yeah, I should pray for him. And he's like, go down there and pray for him. And then, like, this is the new guy telling the church leader what he should be doing. Right? And he's like, okay. And so he told us, he's like, I felt so stupid. He's like, this whole crowd of people's gathered. There's like 100 people now circled around. They're all going to look at me. I'm going to get down there and do, what if this guy doesn't wake up? Like, what, what's going to happen? Like, I'm going to feel so dumb if I pray for him. He just dies. Like, so he gets down there and he's like, not praying in faith. He's like, dear God, you know, like praying. Like everybody's looking at him, like what he's doing. And he said, as soon as he said amen in the prayer, it's like one of those movies where the drowned victim like just starts coughing up water and like comes back to life. And what's crazy about it is like he didn't even have the faith to do that. He was doing it just because he felt bad because the young guy who loved Jesus was like, you should be praying for this guy. And he's like, dang it. I'm like forced into this now. So often the Lord does that. Right? He puts people in front of you to be examples and kind of stir you up. Maybe you might be a more mature believer. Right? Maybe these leaders in Jerusalem had been walking with Jesus for 30 years, and this Apostle Paul, who had only been doing it for like 17 years, and now they're like, oh, yeah, we should be countercultural like he's countercultural. Like, why do they hate him but love us? Like, that shouldn't be happening. Sometimes you need someone to remind you just how different you're supposed to be. Sometimes you need someone to remind you that your way of life is called to be different, like I said at the beginning. Sometimes you need someone to show you what it's supposed to look like and remind you. You're not like these people just watching this guy on the beach die. You should be praying for him. You claim to worship the God who raises the dead. Let's see. Let's go. Don't care how uncomfortable you are. Step out of the crowd. Pray for this guy. I think that might be what's happening here. Paul's life is kind of a reminder to these Christians in Jerusalem. We should not be so comfortable here. And why do I think that's an important message for us to hear? If there's one country in the world who's pretty dang comfortable. Sometimes we need to be reminded we probably shouldn't be so comfortable here. In fact, Peter would go on to write a book after this. And his whole book, we actually studied through it um, the second year of our church, was about being a, uh, like a refugee, right? Like, we're, this isn't our home. Like, you're going to go through hardship here. You're going to go through difficulty because you don't, this is not your place, right? We're exiles here. But we're when we went through the study, we called it exiles from the future. Like, you're going to the, your home. Like, you shouldn't be as comfortable as you are here. 
And I think this message is especially valid for America because, especially Christians, sometimes we get too comfortable. We've forgotten that we need to finish well. And it's going to involve difficulty. It's going to involve misrepresentation, misunderstanding. It's going to involve hardship. And just so you know, complaining about the government on Facebook is not what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people that are like, we need to be countercultural. And then the people in the seats are like, yeah, I was complaining about government on Facebook yesterday. I got it. Everybody complains about the government. Both sides. Nobody in on America is like, you know who's killing it? The government. Like, so if everybody's doing it, you're not countercultural. <laughs> Rant over, okay? Counter, like, Paul was a radical. That's why he was arrested and beaten. He was following Jesus, who was also a radical, who was hung on a cross. The gift of radicals is they don't let you sit on the fence. Now, most of you get that, right? I am blessed by this church. I know most of your faces. I know most of your stories. I love you guys with all my heart. This is my favorite time of the week is to hang out with you guys and study the word of God. I don't know why God put this message on my heart, but there's probably somebody who came today and they're on the fence and they need to be reminded. Like Paul was reminding, I think, all the believers who were watching him go through this. This world is not our home. And here's where we'll finish. I think Luke is intentionally pointing out the similarities between the end of Jesus' life in Jerusalem, in front of an angry crowd, and the Roman government, and Paul's life ending, or the end of his story anyway, in front of an angry crowd in Jerusalem with the Roman authorities involved. I think the parallel, I think the Luke is writing this. Remember, Luke wrote two books. He wrote Luke and then he wrote Acts. And they're both ending very similarly. One ending with Jesus being countercultural, radical, doing things different, and the world not accepting him. And then Jesus' story wraps up. Right? There's a very clear ending to Jesus' story. And Paul's story is almost very, not almost the exact same, but very similar. Like, oh, weird, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the same city. Oh, weird, the Jews don't accept him, just like Jesus. Oh, weird, the Roman authorities are getting involved in arresting him, just like Jesus. Oh, weird. And then the one difference is Paul's story doesn't wrap up nice and clean and pretty and neat. It's open-ended. And I think that's intentional. Because as the reader... We start to go, oh, if Jesus was consumed with staying on course and finishing well, and then he taught Paul to be consumed with staying on course and finishing well, and then Paul taught others to stay on course and finish well, and there's no little bow on the end of it, then the interpretation is maybe I need to write the next chapter of the story. Maybe, maybe that's why this end of Acts is not going to be so neat and tidy as the crucifixion and resurrection was for Jesus because we're supposed to infer something about our stories and how we stay on course and finish well. The story isn't over. We're not going to get to the end of book of Acts and it's like, and they rode off into the sunset. The end, you know, the Disney movie, like, that's not going to happen at the end of Acts. You're going to get to the end of Acts, you'll be like, wait, it's over? No, because it's not over. You're still living. Remember at the beginning of the book of Acts? We talked about it for like four weeks straight. This is the story of all that Jesus began 
to do and to teach. And he's continuing to do in your life as well. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the example that was set before us of not only enduring difficulty, um, but persevering when we feel misunderstood and misrepresented and uh, things are not going our way but are hard and we feel discouraged. Lord, you write these things to give us hope in the midst of those moments. And Father, I have no doubt that people walked in this morning needing hope, uh, needing a reminder that your sovereignty and your goodness and kindness does not cease to be true even though we're in a hard season. And I pray your spirit would just preach hope to those souls that need it this morning. There are other people that walked in this morning, Lord, and they need to be warned. They've gotten too comfortable. And I don't know who they are, but you know. And they've ceased to be countercultural in a way that's actually countercultural. They've settled for being comfortable. Father, if, if that's us, Lord, shake us out of that. Lord, not, not in a guilt-ridden way, not in a condemnation way, Lord, but because you want a life that we love to live. You want what's best for us. You want us to thrive, Lord. Lord, I thank you for your word and how it encourages and strengthens us. I pray it would do its work now in people's hearts, that your spirit would put its finger on the parts of our lives, Lord, that need you so desperately. I'm going to take like 30 seconds and just let you pray on your own. Um, yeah, just, just talk to the Lord in your seat where you're at about what you're going through, about what you just heard, about what the Spirit's putting on your heart. And I'll come back in about 30 seconds, a minute, and finish this out. Father, we're so grateful that you don't leave us like you found us. But you make a way forward. You make a way where there is no way. You give hope. There is no hope. You turn beauty to ashes, Lord. And we love you for that. And we're going to stand right now and sing of your goodness because of what you've done. Thank you.